Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Rachel Everard talks to Marek Reichman, design director of legendary luxury car maker Aston Martin. In a wide-ranging conversation, the pair discuss the future of luxury cars in a zero-carbon world, the exciting potential of battery technology, and why James Bond won't be changing car brands anytime soon. Hi, Marek. Thank you for joining me here today. It's a, a real pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you about your role at Aston Martin. I understand that you're a graduate of the Royal College of Art and also a visiting professor there. I really wanted to start with asking a, a broad question, but what really inspired you to get into designing cars? I think design in general was was part of the reason for wanting to be a designer. So the thinking and thought process behind creativity and ideas and forward thinking. You know, as a designer, you are always thinking about tomorrow with, with a nod to yesterday. And so why cars? I went through an industrial design degree first. So I had a, a bachelor's degree in industrial design because I grew up in, in Sheffield. I grew up in, in the industrial north, as it were. And, and I was inspired by really the manufacturing capability of, of materials. So obviously Sheffield was renowned for steel. Um, and I was inspired by a particular cutler called David Meller, who had a studio in, um, out in, in the Peak District in Derbyshire that you could go and visit. Uh, and as a youngster, I went along and I watched designers sketching knives and forks and, and cutlery and, and those objects being made in front of you in a workshop. And I just was inspired by the process of from sketch to something made. The cars came in because my family, if you could call them petrol heads, if you like, my dad, my older brother, I couldn't resist because they were so much into their cars. And as the youngest of, of the, the boys, if you like, then it was inevitable. And I just put design and cars together, which was the Royal College of Art, which was a master's degree. And that was it. Here we are. I'm at Aston Martin now for 16 years. So... Growing up in, in the Peak District, it's a beautiful part of the, the country. Has kind of that landscape, that nature inspired your work at all? I think, yeah, nature does inspire. You know, I'm, I am fascinated by the billions and billions of years of design that, that nature has gone through and the evolution through, through nature. And, and I think the shape and the changing shape of landscape, the, the etymology of where things come from, the fascination of how does something and why does something look the way it looks? Why is one object soft and one hard? What are the materials? Why are things done in, the, in a certain way? And then obviously the beauty that comes with a landscape, the beauty that comes with the flower fauna, the rock systems, et cetera, et cetera, that you would see in, in a natural landscape, I, I find fascinating. And still, nature obviously creates color, shape, and form exceptionally to the point where every single day we look at it and say, that's beautiful. And, and part of my role and job as a designer is to create things that are beautiful. I certainly think that we do live in a, in a beautiful world and I agree with you there. And to, to what extent does sustainability impact your design work and your 
career at Aston Martin and the aspirations there. You know, it's such an important part of the world going forward to protect the nature that we just mentioned, to protect the, the ecosystems that we have. And as a designer, thinking about materiality, the reuse of materials or the constant use of materials or the, the fact that an Aston Martin is for life, as it were, you know, and, and in 108 years, we've made around 100,000 cars. 96% of those cars still exist. They sit in collections. They sit uh, as pride of place for many people in their, in their car collections or, or as a piece of art. And, and I think that's such an important factor when you consider designing and creating an object that doesn't get thrown away. It, it's constantly reused and used and restored and, and reinvented, as it were. And it's, it's part of that process. And obviously, as we move forward, we have to think about hybridization, electrification, which is all part of our, our journey going forward. We've just announced and shown our future first hybrid, which will be the Valhalla, which is a mid-engine sports car, which is a hybrid system in it. And that will be Aston Martin's first hybrid. And obviously, as we look towards the mid to the end of, of this decade, we'll be looking at full BEV for Aston Martin as well. That's really exciting. I think some critics might say that such a luxury car brand and sustainability are incompatible, but it shows me that that's absolutely not what you think. To what extent do you believe that sustainability is the most important approach when designing a new car, particularly taking something so iconic and making it more sustainable? Yeah, I think it is. It has to be front and centre of mind, really, in terms of how we're designing, defining, and the materials that are used, the materiality that is used in terms of the reusability of those materials or the fact that they should have minimum effect, as it were, in, in terms of the food chain or the supply chain. And that's really important. And we have to consider and think about the next generation of consumers in, in a vegan world, as it, as it were, a, non, a non-leather-based world for luxury. And we do. We, look, we are looking at bamboo, mushroom leathers, etc., banana uh, leather created from banana leaves, um, banana plant leaves. So it, it's, it's very much part of how we think about future materials. As I mentioned early on, design is about tomorrow with a nod to what happened yesterday. And it's very much about the advancement of the materials and the science that we use in materials of tomorrow. On, on average, a car takes about four and a half years to go from sketch to reality. So you're, as soon as you start to sketch and think about a car, you're already projecting four or five years into the future. So you therefore have to think about what will be front and center of people's minds in five years time when they come to the purchase proposition. The World Expo is, is all about celebrating innovation and how innovation, sustainable innovation can be used to create a, a better future. As the, the Chief Creative Officer of Aston Martin, how do you envisage your vehicles moving people around in the future, perhaps beyond the five-year horizon you've just talked about, you know, looking at the mid-century where we need to get to net zero carbon by 2050? I think, you know, for Aston Martin, obviously, it's it's a product that is made in very, very limited numbers. And the rarity of our product is is so important. And, you know, if, if I draw the analogy from the past of, say, the horse, as it were, and you looked at the turn of the century, the 19th century, you'd see the horse being very relevant and prevalent within that. And now it's it's something which is used for most people's pleasure and it's used for enjoyment and entertainment in many ways. And I think if you look at an Aston Martin in the future, it would be part of someone's lifestyle, but it has to fit within the constraints that are set. 
in, in terms of zero emissions and what the products are. So we have to think about the lifestyle of an Aston Martin consumer and customer and what is the product in the future. Because for sure, it's a, it's a well-known 108-year-old brand that has existed for the entirety of our life so far producing cars. But maybe in the future, it's more about the service side of that. It's more about the lifestyle side of Aston Martin as well. And that makes us think about what the product is and how it's used. And you know, we don't aim to be producing millions and millions of Aston Martins in the future. And, and I think that's something we have to think about in terms of the rarity and how those cars are used and what they're used for as well. I think I've heard it said before that the Aston Martin is a, a connoisseur's car. It's all about the driver's experience. How do you envision the sort of role of autonomous driving and more electric driving as well is, is still having a, a role to play in, in the driver's experience. Yeah, absolutely. You buy an Aston Martin to drive it for sure, you know, and, and you buy a lot of our competitors' cars to drive them. Autonomy is, is in many respects inevitable across many, many industries and through many, many products. You know, we don't have typewriters anymore. Uh, we don't wash our clothes in rivers anymore uh, because we automated all of those things. Driving is is something that you can do for pleasure, but you also have to do currently for commuting or to get to somewhere. Now, you don't necessarily want to drive when you're commuting somewhere. That may be a journey that has to be autonomous. But when it comes to the pleasure side of driving, that's where autonomous systems can actually really help and improve your driving as well. You imagine you drive against the car in many respects, or you, you drive and the car helps and teaches you to drive better and helps and teaches you to drive in a slightly different way. So I think autonomy is so important in terms of how you use products in the future. But Ultimately, you're buying an Aston Martin to drive it. And if we can use autonomy and the autonomous systems to make driving feel better, to give you a better experience in driving, then that's how we will use autonomy. How could that happen? Obviously, we are renowned for producing race cars. We have a Formula One team currently. We have been winners of Le Mans in the past of so the 24-hour race. We have data. We gather data. We collect data from the drivers that drive constantly, the team that drives for 24 hours, just in terms of heart rate, um, how the driving is, is affecting the race driver and how we can use that data to improve driving when you're not in a race, as it were. Very much the same in Formula One. Formula One is about gathering data to make things more efficient. So we can use data to, to improve efficiency and we can use autonomy to improve efficiency of our cars as well and how you drive them. So are you able to bring innovation from your Formula One team into the cars that you're designing for the consumer market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's vital. Yes, it's a racing platform, but as I said, it's a data gathering platform. It's a material science-based platform. It's an efficiency platform. The chassis that you see in a Formula One car are incredibly lightweight and incredibly strong. The aerodynamics are used to, to create downforce and grip, but you can also use aerodynamics to create efficiency, more fuel efficiency or energy efficiency. And we, we do directly take from the Formula One team our ideas. Valkyrie, as a for instance, there's only 150 of them ever going to be made as coupe, 85 uh, spiders. 
they're really a Formula One car for the road. The technology behind the tub, the structure, the chassis, the aerodynamic capabilities that the car has a direct link to Formula One. So already we're taking the Formula One idea and producing a road car from those ideas. Coming back to that point on autonomous driving and autonomous vehicles, that sounds like it will require a whole systems level change in order to have autonomous vehicles on the road and potentially sharing the road with with driven vehicles. What role do you see policymakers and other players, other stakeholders having in, in making that vision a reality? It's so important to allow the innovation, to allow a road system to have both autonomous and driven cars. You know, imagine the cars in the future all having to talk to each other and understand. It's so important that we allow policy to innovate in those areas, to give us the opportunity to do the testing, the, 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 the thinking that needs to go behind having both systems. And how do we adapt the systems for the various usage of, as I mentioned before, pleasure driving, commuting, or maybe rural intercity? You know, we always think about the city, but what about the rural side of those things for the community that live out in the Peak District, as a for instance? How do we get the autonomous vehicle to work in both settings? And how do we get the autonomous vehicle to work alongside a driven vehicle? So policy needs to be there to allow us to experiment, to adapt and invest so that we can understand what's needed. I mean, there is so much big data needed to create an autonomous car. You know, imagine the reaction speed and the capability we have as human drivers has to be replicated by the machine. And the machine learning needs to be incredible to, to actually make it safe for everyone on the road, particularly if, if you have a combination of autonomous and driven product. Marek, I've heard you talk in the past around mentored autonomy. Can you just give me a little bit more information on, on what that is and what role you think that will play? Just in, in terms of how we use the autonomy and, and then how you're actually gaining from the experience of the autonomy. So how do you use the autonomy to actually, if you like, improve the systems that you as the driver can use and be aware of. And that's where we can look at data and, and we can look at the systems when you're driving and the systems when the car is driving. And actually, because the car is a series of computers as well, of, of controllers, it can understand how you drive and can also learn from your driving, but vice versa, you can be mentored in your driving by the autonomy. So imagine, not even on the racetrack, on the road, what's the most efficient way from A to B on the road? How do I make the corner braking speed, the driving speed through the corner within the legal road limits to maximize the efficiency on that journey? Because you may be able to do a certain route and pathway, but the autonomous car probably picks the most efficient one. So how do you then learn from the autonomous vehicle in terms of the efficiency of your driving? And that would be the, the mentored approach, if you like, to, to autonomy. And I suppose that in, in that case, cars are going to become better drivers than we are. I think ultimately you might say that, yes. I think that's probably inevitable, but the fun of driving is still there for you to experience. And maybe at some point you challenge the vehicle. You know, we, we see it now on it, online gaming, et cetera, et cetera, where you can actually challenge the physical object. It has a lap time in a race, as a for instance. You can go online and try and beat the physical lap time in your digital environment. So, yes, for sure. Will the car drive better? Yes. But can you enjoy that 
to your own benefit because you can learn from that for sure. And I think that's part of, if you love driving, that's really what you want to do. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an emotion-based skill. Just as riding a horse back in the 1890s was important to maybe plow your field, today it's important for your own pleasure and for the pleasure of the horse. So at some point in the future, driving will become something that people simply do for fun. really sounds like you believe that autonomous driving is, is inevitable in our future. I think it's inevitable, as I say, for certain driving conditions, because as a, for instance, let's use the M25 as an example. It, you know, quite often the M25 is, is at a standstill. If autonomy can improve the movement of traffic, then why wouldn't you want autonomy around something like the M25? But when you decide to take the snake pass from Sheffield to Manchester, for sure you want to be driving your car over the snake pass because it's just such a beautiful road and it's a beautiful experience. And I think therefore we have to combine the two. It's inevitable because actually being stuck in a traffic jam isn't fun for anyone. Why wouldn't you let the car take over in those instances? So you can do something else. You can enjoy that time. So you do enjoy the journey. It's not a frustrating journey because you're able to do something else as you're going on that journey. I mean, I would love to never have to drive the M25 again, for sure. Can we leapfrog that? What about looking at flying cars, flying taxis, something that's very close to my heart coming from Rolls-Royce? What do you think the role of Aston Martin is in looking in that space? We're a luxury car maker. And if the luxury car space decides to go five meters, 50 meters off the ground, for sure that's somewhere that, that Aston Martin would have to look. Right now, we have all four wheels firmly planted on the ground and it's all about traction, but it may be an inevitability that luxury movement is not on the ground, that it does sit just above the ground or slightly higher than, than five meters off the ground. We are seeing obviously more and more experiments and the creation of drones for delivery. So we're, we're seeing smaller drones that will be able to deliver again, very, very fast, very quick in terms of their efficiency. But it's a balance of, of weight and efficiency when you get to something like a flying car, because that the humans are relatively heavy and cars are relatively heavy currently cons concerning how you lift that off the ground with efficiency. So it might be a while yet before I'm able to fly in an Aston Martin. Probably some time to go yet, yeah. And, and Marek, you've studied and, and worked in both the UK and the US. What do you think it is that makes the UK such a world leader in, in high-performance car design and manufacturing, brands like Aston Martin, really leaders in this market? I think you know this is where the UK is incredibly strong. We we talked about Formula One earlier on. A high percentage of the Formula One teams are created in the UK. The team may be owned by by different ownership or from a different country, but the technical skill exists in the UK. Mercedes, as a perfect example, is based in Brackley, um, close to Silverstone. And I think we have always had in the UK a brilliant ability to think outside the box to create something innovative. If you look at many, many of the sectors, whether it's microchips, high fidelity sound, uh, precision instrumentation, the UK is very, very strong. And that then applies aerospace industries again, et cetera. That also applies to the world of, of cars and automobiles, the creation of, of unique systems, of innovative systems, of the material analysis that goes on. 
historically, you could look back at companies like Lotus talking about lightweight engineering, talking about lightweight structures. And now if, if you look at the Formula One world and the technology involved in the Formula One world, it sits here in, in the hub of the UK. Why? I think our university systems allow creative thinking. I think we allow the students that are being educated to think differently, to apply themselves differently. And that's so important. Education in, in this country is so important for the future thinkers on a global scale. And, you know, again, F1 is, is great proof of the pudding there because I'm not quite sure of the total percentage, but I would say something like 55 stroke 60% of all the Formula One cars are actually constructed, built, engineered, designed in the UK. And finally, Marek, I can't speak to Aston Martin without bringing up James Bond. What do you think the W07 of the future will be driving or, or potentially flying around in? <laughs> well, obviously, if, you, if you've just seen No Time to Die, he does do a lot of flying around as well. And for sure, it's going to be an Aston Martin. Will it have an alternative propulsion system? I am I'm absolutely sure. Will it be a he or a she? I can't tell you. Um, we've had a relationship with the Eon franchise and James Bond since 1964. It's a relationship that obviously you can't put a price tag on, on the relationship. And it's one where we enjoy the company of Eon, Barbara Broccoli, Michael Wilson and Daniel Craig now and ourselves to create cars for James Bond to do his or her job in the future in the best possible way. So I am sure... James Bond will be driving an Aston Martin, probably all four wheels on the ground, but probably PHEV or battery electric vehicle in the future. Thank you, Marek. And thank you for taking the time to appear on this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. I didn't expect we'd go from horses to Formula One to James Bond, but we've managed to combine all of my childhood pleasures in one 20 minutes. So thank you so much. <laughs> You're very welcome. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.